we can all be a part of the overall conversation around mental health and we can all understand how we are a unique piece in a jigsaw puzzle that cannot be completed without all of our involvement. Hello and welcome to the Common Ground podcast. In a time of ecological and climate crisis, of rising inequality and social injustice, it can all seem just a little bit overwhelming. We get it. And that's why Common Ground brings you the stories of those driven by passion, who are striving fiercely to make our common home better for all who live here. Each week, we'll hear from a new guest who'll tell us all about the issue that spurred them to take action to help inspire you to create positive and meaningful change in the world. I'm your host, Chess Fernley, geographer, environmentalist and concerned global citizen. Well, hello and welcome back to another episode of the Common Ground podcast. In 2016, it was estimated that 75% of people in the UK may not get the help that they need for mental health problems and that staggeringly, people who identify as Asian or Asian British were 14% less likely than average to be in contact with mental health services. My guest this week, Shuranjit Singh, knows this all too well. As a result of his own experience of mental ill health during his university years, Shuranjit was compelled to found the not-for-profit Taraki, a word meaning to progress to an improved or more developed state of being back in 2017. The not-for-profit specifically caters and advocates for culturally appropriate mental health support to those within the Punjabi community. Join us as we discuss everything from localised health solutions to the role of faith and faith institutions in breaking the taboo about mental well-being. Sharon Jeet Singh, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you to the Common Ground podcast today. Thank you, thank you for having me. I wondered whether we could possibly start with just giving our audience a little bit of an introduction about who you are and and sort of what you've been up to. So my name is Sharanjit Singh. I am 24. I am a Punjabi mental health community activist from Birmingham in the United Kingdom. And in October 2017, I founded an organisation called Taraki. And Taraki works with Punjabi communities to reshape approaches to mental health. But it was quite a strange journey for me to actually arrive into doing this type of work. I have, you know, very little background in mental health related study. I did, you know, politics and international relations for my undergrad. I did South Asian history and politics for my master's. So I'm excited today to just think about how I might have come to have this conversation with you and with everyone listening today and just outline some of the different ways we can all be a part of the overall conversation around mental health and we can all understand how we are a unique piece in a jigsaw puzzle that cannot be completed without all of our involvement. I wonder whether you could just start by taking us back and and understanding the the sort of context that led you to want to to start Tracky. As I mentioned, I was born and raised in Birmingham, in Handsworth, and Handsworth is an area of increasingly and incredibly diverse communities, diverse languages, diverse cultures. So when my grandparents moved to Handsworth in the late 1960s, it was a place of amazing migration. It was a place where individuals would come to start new lives. And I remember growing up and growing up in Handsworth, I was seeing, I was speaking with, I was eating completely different things, you know, 
across my childhood, um, engaging with people in different ways. And for me, that made my upbringing one that was very multicultural. And for me, everything started to slightly change a bit when I went to uni. And so for uni, I was the first one in my family to leave Birmingham and go to uni. And so for me, there was a lot of questions around, okay, how do I adapt? How do I learn to live in a new place? So, you know, all my life, I had, I knew I stuck out, like being a Sikh guy, being wearing a turban, having a big beard. You know, you do stick out from the crowd. But living out in Hansworth, I didn't feel like I stuck out all the time. But when I went and I moved out of Birmingham for uni, I realized that I was in a place where I felt I stuck out even more. And I remember people asking me questions. You know, some of these questions are really genuinely curious. Other, others were slightly more ignorant, where they would ask me about, you know, why I looked how I looked, you know, what my family background was, you know, where I'd come from, all these different types of things. And I guess, you know, for the first few weeks, for the first few months, I was kind of happy answering these questions. But then slowly people started asking the same, same questions and people started bringing their own prejudices into these types of conversations. And I remember each conversation, it would be so tiring for me having to explain, you know, myself, having to explain my identity, having to explain who I was at this time. And so I stopped wearing my turban and I stopped kind of engaging with my faith in an attempt to stop people asking, constantly asking me a lot of these questions. I would walk around my uh, uni with my, you know, hair in a bun with a beard and, you know, it was around 2014. So all those things were in fashion again then. Surprisingly, this didn't actually stop the questions. People were still asking me questions. People were still prodding me. And that made me feel as I didn't fit in before. I don't fit in now. Will I ever fit in in this type of environment? Being someone who'd just moved away from home, moving into a new place, wanting to live independently, that was really hard for me just to be standing out so much. I just wanted to be a part of the furniture. I wanted to just exist and be able to do my uni work, be able to make friends and stuff like that. But as this continued, I really just stopped engaging with people socially and I stopped speaking to people in the sociable manner I'd become accustomed to before I went to uni I stopped engaging with people in the same way and so this really limited the amount I could actually develop my you know social well-being at uni and over time this led to me isolating myself more and more and I remember one particular event where we and I brought some Punjabi students together at the university for a, you know, a chai and chat. And we had the chai and chat. I remember going in, serving people tea, uh, serving people food, but I wasn't able to speak to anyone in the room. And for me, that was the point I realized, whoa, something is making it really difficult for me to have this conversation. Something is stopping me from living my life the way I want to live it. Yeah. Now, how can we think about what is happening right now? How can we understand this and how can we try and move beyond it? Because this isn't how I want to live my life. And I remember at this point, I was thinking, you know, I'm living away from home. I can't really speak to my friends and family at home about this because, you know, I'm meant to be living independently. I'm meant to be looking after myself. I'm meant to be showing my friends and family that I have the responsibility to actually live on my own. So I didn't speak to them about what was happening. And luckily, I have had some absolutely amazing housemates and we were able to actually sit down have conversations you know sit there playing playstation whilst talking about things like this 
And slowly, slowly, whilst we were having these conversations, we were able to connect on the difficulties that we were also experiencing. And so we were able to actually talk about these things and have a space for that discussion that allowed me to understand what I might have been experiencing, allowed me to connect with other people based on what they'd experienced. And really, it was building a relationship and it was developing the social well-being that I really, really lacked at uni at that time. This was in my third year, so about halfway through my third year. We, me and my housemates, we would have a really nice routine where a few of us would go and work in the morning. We'd get back in the uh, afternoon or evening. We'd make dinner, sit down, talk, and just you know listen to music, play PlayStation, all these different kinds of things. But underscoring that was a relationship and was a environment where we could all bring our whole selves and so that made me feel very very at home it made me feel very comfortable and maybe that feeling of comfort was something I had not found previous to that outside of Birmingham I started understanding what I was experiencing the different types of nervousness I was experiencing you know the the real difficulties I was having and socializing with other people going into large rooms and that really just started a journey of me understanding what this was and me trying to understand how I could manage these difficulties in my life. Just after I finished my undergrad, I started my master's. And third, second or third month of my master's, I was really thinking about these topics around mental health within Punjabi communities. And I realized that I was so lucky to have had the support I had. I was so lucky to have had the support structure that really opened a space for me to be myself and it opened a space for all of us to be ourselves without a fear of being stigmatized or a fear of being judged and I looked at other individuals within Punjabi communities all around the UK and I saw people who were going through and who were living with mental health difficulties but weren't as lucky to access those types of support structures or those types of spaces and in particular I was looking at the conversations around male mental health and I saw individuals in the news in popular culture in the media talking about male mental health but these were largely you know Russell Brand, Stephen Fry's um, so a few years ago now so it wasn't as kind of broad as the discussions that are happening currently but I remember speaking to one of my uncles and I said to my uncle oh, you know we kind of got onto the topic of mental health very briefly and he looked at me and said oh, which means oh it's a, it's a white person's thing I said, okay, obviously, you know, that isn't, that is not, it's not correct. There is very little within the discussions around male mental health in media, on television, etc., that is working to combat those assumptions. We started Taraki, and Taraki is a Punjabi word um, found also in Hindi and in Urdu, uh, which is, which means to progress. And Taraki started at the beginning, very, very initially, as a movement that works with Punjabi communities to reach over approaches to mental health but we, we started at the beginning with a male mental health project and that was what we did for at least a year at the beginning trying to bring those discussions into a public uh, where previously they hadn't been platformed they hadn't been amplified uh, and so they really weren't known uh, to the extent that other communities mental health difficulties were yeah. Um, and so yeah that was the kind of strange up to the foundation of Taraki in like October, November 2017. Thank you for, for sharing that experience with us and you've touched on so many things there that I kind of want to delve into in, in more detail but I, you know one of the first things that I really want to paint a picture of is this understanding about 
sort of mental health access and especially male mental health access in the UK. I read um, in one of the reports that Taraki um, published about how it's estimated 75% of people in the UK may not get the help that they need for mental health problems. Suicide being the biggest killer of men under 45, 75% of death by suicide are, are men. And then within that, this kind of nuance that the experience isn't the same for all people. For example, a statistic that said that those that identify as Asian or Asian British are 14% less likely than average to put themselves in contact or to be in contact with mental health services. So it looks like there's this huge sort of disparity a really complex picture of what's happening within the UK in terms of mental health access. Definitely. And, you know, underscoring all of that conversation around access, we need to really be thinking, where do people go for their help? Where do people go for their support? We realise that formalised mental health services that may be attached to you know, a hospital or the NHS, that's one version of help. And there are so many questions that are existing around services, how services may meet the needs, may not meet the needs of individuals, uh, but how it is such a complex picture as you outline. You made reference to the treatment gap, which is 75% of those who require support aren't accessing or aren't able to access that support. One of the things we're trying to understand is again that's a generalized picture and um, you know we might understand we might see the treatment gap larger in some communities smaller in other communities it's one step identifying what the treatment gap is and the second step is thinking how do we ensure that not only these ser existing services are adequate and acceptable for different communities but also how can these services actually be community informed at the beginning and it's something I'm becoming increasingly interested in now because after I did my master's the South Asian politics and history one I was lucky enough to receive kind of a little scholarship to go and study in Canada yeah at the University of Toronto doing a master's in health services research in the kind of institute for health policy management and evaluation being able to actually answer these questions and think about these questions now from the perspective of someone who works at a grassroots community level but also uh, within an academic space is really exciting I feel. Absolutely bridging that hybrid because I guess it's sort of understanding about where knowledge comes from you know often we think that it's scientists and doctors whereas actually it's balance of that higher education with grassroots understanding. We see that very much in the way we speak about things there is a hierarchy of knowledge and there's a hierarchy of representation. You might be having a conversation at a grassroots level where they're talking about a concept, but people within policy, people within academia won't understand that in the same way uh, compared to them reading it in a journal or reading it in a briefing paper. All of these things might be saying the same thing or, the very, or a very similar thing, but it's just the language that they're using and the way they're kind of seasoning the discussion that makes it acceptable and readable by particular audiences. And I feel that is one of the key skills required when you're navigating, whether it's community mental health care spaces, whether it's policy spaces, whether it's academic spaces, it's being able to 
have an understanding and a command over the languages that are used in those particular areas. That's one of the things I'm finding at the moment is how to thread through these conversations from a grassroots level. How can we ensure that people are hearing us there? How can we ensure that our voices are heard within policy? And then how can we also ensure, ensure that we're heard within research? And it's like a big puzzle. At the beginning, the puzzle seemed big but now the puzzle I saw at the beginning was just the bottom small corner of the overall puzzle that I'm seeing <laughs> at the moment. It is a journey that doesn't get boring and it's one that keeps you thinking, keeps you but is always 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 things to learn. There's always ways of thinking that can make small changes to how you perceive things, but those small changes make a huge difference to your identity as a person, as an organization. I wanted to really dig deeper into this conversation and talk about some of the findings from your research which I know is just one arm of the incredible work that you do at, at Turkey which was you did a great study which sort of pieced together and identified a variety of reasons why people from the Pujambi community don't access mental health services. One of the suggestions that I thought was particularly interesting was the idea that we have a in in the UK at least we have a very westernized model of care and that doesn't necessarily account for the cultural experiences of the Punjabi community I have two questions you, you sort of called for a sort of a cultural education in order to bridge this gap and the first question I sort of wanted to know the answer to was what would this look like and the the second thing is you mentioned the idea that you know, we have this one size fits all approach and the idea that we need more localized health solutions. And I wondered whether you could just expand on, on these ideas a little bit. With regards to what a culturally sensitive or a culturally safe service would look like. When I was in Canada, I went out and engaged with this organization called the Punjabi Community Health Services out in the greater Toronto area, so the kind of yeah, greater Toronto area, so the surrounding areas around Toronto. And they had a model where it was the family as the client rather than the individual as the client. And with that comes an understanding of the multiple individuals, the multiple forces that might actually work to shape what we see as an individual experience. But really that individual experience is so firmly embedded within collectivist structures, within families, within communities that when you try and disentangle it, you automatically lose some of that nuance. And so when I saw the work they were doing, and they were doing some really incredible work on mental health, on addictions, on helping newly migrated folks uh, kind of settle down, when they were doing that, they had a focus right at the beginning about the wider structures that can shape what we perceive as individual experiences. And by thinking about the family as, uh, in this case, the family as the client, you're also able to really think about other external factors that are integral to the being of an individual, whether that is faith, whether it's different parts of culture. These things are important for people at different levels. And when we're thinking about something that we feel is between the individual and their particular you know, their experiences, we might inadvertently detach those experiences from the context within which they operate. And when, when we think about things like mental health, we can see that there is an overt medicalization of mental health, which I think uh, has emerged 
more and more through Western practice, but more and more through practice that decontextualizes what people are going through from the social, the political, the economic context within which they operate. And so I think at the moment, I don't exactly know what a culturally safe or a culturally sensitive service would look like. As mentioned before, there are small changes that we can make in our thinking you know really really small but they make a world of difference when we're approaching issues and just a really small example of that with our with Turkey's um, kind of tagline or with our kind of motto uh, you know working with Punjabi communities to reshape approaches to mental health people say it's, it's quite long and I say I know I say I know it's long it's <laughs> when you try when you try and make things short you but you can reduce reduce topics to uh, to such an extent that you lose uh, an important essence. And there are two really small things that I changed within that slogan. And the first is we're working with Punjabi communities in the plural rather than the Punjabi community. When we're thinking about Punjabi communities, you know, we are thinking about Punjabi men, Punjabi women, Punjabi LGBTQ plus folks. We're thinking about Punjabi, Punjabi folks who might identify with being Punjabi in different ways but we're not homogenizing what it means to be Punjabi. And when we're working with groups, that allows us to understand that identities are going to be fundamentally intersectional within different contexts. They're going to be overlapping. Being cognizant of that overlapping is going to be is so important to appreciating it and acknowledging the extent of complexity within communities themselves. And the other small change that we did was uh, Taraki wants to reshape how Punjabi communities approach mental health. Really, we're thinking, are we the, one, are we the thing that wants to change it? You know, does the change come from us? You know, in reality, we're just shaping spaces for that change to emerge naturally from people themselves, rather than from us as the kind of change maker. And so, these two really small things um, have massively shifted how I understand Turkey, how we relate with our volunteers, how we relate with the people we work with. It just acknowledges the fundamental aspect of you know, diversity within diversity and also the locus of change fundamentally being people themselves rather than you know, particular organizations or particular, particular movements. When we're thinking about the family as the, as the client, this is just something small, but it automatically puts your frame of reference as something broader than the individual. And by doing so, you're, you open your mind up to so many more, more factors rather than just something that be, can be quite narrow. But these are just small changes that can make a whole world of difference in how you think about things. You know, I guess the localized health support relates to what we were saying about diversity within diversity. If we're looking at how to best work with communities to reshape approaches to mental health, we have to fundament fundamentally acknowledge that experiences will be multifaceted across geography, across time. What we're trying to do at the moment is thinking about how we can engage folks within a particular locale and work with them so that they can work with their communities to understand what is required and how we can create a space to improve what might not be working too well at the moment. When we're thinking about a one-size-fits-all policy, and I think a lot of policy, the implementation of policy, uh, in my opinion, is something that needs to have a strong rootedness within particular localities and a strong rootedness about how this is actually going to work whether it's possible, whether it's not possible within particular context, how we can move from just saying this needs to happen 
to actually implementing that because there is so much around the implementation of knowledge that is missing within our current conversations. We can talk about we can talk a lot about what we want to see happen, but a lot less about how that's going to happen. Working towards more locally centered method of understanding healthcare needs can help to develop more targeted and more focused uh, services that go beyond just healthcare infrastructure. So thinking about how do we work with local individuals, local partners, local stakeholders to ensure that the work that they do be best amplified and supported by the healthcare system more broadly. And I think we're moving towards that slightly, what's it called, social prescribing. Lots of conversations around social prescribing. Um, and I think that is one step towards acknowledging the need for a more integrated uh, more, and more, more holistic. Um, and it'd be interesting to see how that evolves you know, over the next few years. It's incredibly powerful, really. And it just, to me, reiterates the sort of idea that we're all individual and you know we all have these individual experiences and it only seems right the support that we have takes that into account in in return what i was really interested in understanding was all the programs and research and outreach that you've done so far how has that been received within the punjabi community is there support because my sort of understanding is that typically older generations have this and, and as you've pointed out have this understanding that you know mental health is not not a problem for the Punjabi community or it's in the context of what older people might have gone through throughout their lives like mental health is is nothing I wonder whether that's a barrier that you've faced in your journey so I think for me at the beginning I assumed that you know older generations they didn't really understand the conversations we're having around mental health they didn't really connect with them it's just the language with which you have those conversations the way we're having that conversation can be completely different which means that people are taking meaning from it in a completely different way one of the ways that older generations may have tried to understand uh, younger younger generations experiences of mental health and mental illness has been through trying to compare it to the you know, very physical nature of their work when they moved to the moved to say for the UK for example so my grandparents moved here in the 60s grandma worked in a factory she um, kind of raised you know her family as a single parent that was very very physically demanding even though it was definitely mentally demanding the physical demands were also incredibly high they were in survival mode for so long and when you're in survival mode you just ensure that you have enough to support yourself and support your children, support your family, support those around you. When we have these conversations sometimes with older generations, we can have these discussions about what hardship might mean. And sometimes the discussions around hardship can lead to a comparison between older generations and younger generations. And sometimes I think that comparison is important, but sometimes when you place it as this hardship was um, you know, a lot more difficult than this other hardship, you can lead to the invalidation of particular experiences. You know, it's important that these conversations with older generations are met in particular ways. Personally, I think there are three things that are important when you're having these conversations with older folks around mental health. The first is language. And thinking about how you're having these conversations. Is English the first language of whoever you're speaking with? You know, what are the frames of reference that this person uses to understand their life? I remember once we had a day-long educational program at a Gurdwara, so a Sikh place of worship. We were speaking to the, the Sangat, which is the kind of congregation. I was speaking about my experiences of mental health difficulties. And I knew by looking at the, at the group that that was just going to connect with about 10% of people there. 
you know, I'm speaking from my position as a 20 something year old student. But the person I was speaking with, his name is Baljeet Singh. He is a Sikh educator who is a lot more knowledgeable around things like the Guru Granth Sahib Ji, which is the Sikh scriptures. Baljeet was able to speak from his experiences of mental health difficulties, but intertwine it with discussions that are centered around Sikhi, so centered around the Sikh faith. And he made a really important point. The older people and the younger people across that whole talk didn't leave the room of an opportunity cost. You're either going to have something that engages young people or engages older people. You know, some people will end up leaving the room, some people will. But he made the remark that as well as the younger people who were sat at the front, you had all of the older generation who were sat at the back on the chairs or kind of sat up against the wall. They were all sat there and they were listening and they were engaged. And so that proved to me that these conversations are possible. We need to think about, again, kind of going into the really technical term of implementation. We need to think about how these conversations are taking place. The other thing around having discussions with older generations is something about compassion. We might be talking about mental health difficulties. We might, might be talking about difficult experiences. I can't even imagine the amount of things that the older generations within my local communities have experienced that they haven't processed or they haven't necessarily, or they processed in a particular way where they've kind of thrown it to the back of their minds and they've just kind of got on with things, things that they have processed in the moment, but haven't been able to afford to process properly. So when you're having a conversation around mental health and well-being with individuals who may have had these experiences, you know, you're going to get resistance because that is a survival mechanism. And so just being a bit compassionate around having these discussions, you know, you don't need to go from zero to a hundred, like real quick, you know, it's having these conversations slowly over a longer period of time, which is what brings me to my third point, which is patience. It's easy and we see it now as well, where we're having discussions around Black Lives Matter and police brutality and kind of systemic injustices faced by black folks. When we're having conversations with our communities about these things, something that happens over time rather, rather than something that's going to happen in the next 20 or 30 minutes. Conversations around mental health are similar in the fact that you're not going to be able to change someone's mind in 20 or 30 minutes a lot of the time. It's a commitment that will take a longer period. And I remember my, my experiences, you know, speaking with some of my friends from back home. We were having conversations around topics like mental health, but we'd have them three times a year. It took a couple of years for the penny to drop. And I remember when the penny did drop and I just thought, whoa, okay, this is, you know, we've, we've been talking about this for literally for so long. Within all of those conversations, I tried to make sure that I was communicating my points in the language the person could connect with the most. I tried to ensure that I was meeting them with compassion in how we were having those discussions. I wasn't making rash judgments about them as people. I wasn't invalidating their choices. I was ensuring that they, were, they felt heard. And importantly, we slowly, continually had these conversations over a longer period of time. And now, you know, that this particular individual gets really involved with the work that we do in Birmingham. And it's fantastic to see they were able to have conversations around mental health in such an amazing way compared to what it might have been a few years back. How can we ensure that we're speaking the language of the individual we're engaging with? How can we ensure that we are showing compassion in how we're speaking with them? And how can we ensure that we are patient in how we're engaging with them over a certain amount of time but I just think they're three interesting points <laughs> no no they're they're invaluable and just sort of slightly drawing things to a close now I wondered whether what your advice would be or what would your takeaway be in terms of 
you know your journey i would say that experiences are invaluable even though they might feel so difficult or so unneeded at the time we need to embrace complexity whenever we're doing any of this type of work we need to embrace complexity our society there is a there's a penchant for reducing things we like to reduce things into neat and manageable chunks oftentimes these reductions can come at the cost of nuance and so when we're having these discussions and when we're trying to work with particular communities the very fact is in that we need to be particular and in doing so we can develop a greater appreciation and a greater level of depth even then even within what we think is a narrow segment of our society and that leads you on to really appreciating and understanding that individuals you know families all these different types of social actors are so unique and our work isn't going to happen overnight it will happen slowly it will happen conscientiously and it will happen fundamentally collectively thank you so much and if people wanted to get in touch with you what's the best way of doing so I would say check out our website. So it's taraki.co.uk. That's T-A-R-A-K-I.co.uk. You can get in contact with us through there. Um, or my personal Twitter is just at Sharanjeet. Um, and I'm sure my name will be spelled somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sharanjeet, thank you so much for your time today. Honestly, it's been hugely enlightening for me. And you know, there are so many positive takeaways and messages things that people can implement going forward so thank you so much for your time it's been it's been fantastic no worries thank you for having me wow what did you think another hugely inspiring individual and an inspiring story and i i hope that you've come away from that feeling as enlightened as i did speaking to sharon jeet those three factors that he mentioned towards the end there i think are fantastic takeaways and learning points for us all how can we speak the language of those around us? How can we ensure that we show compassion? And how can we ensure that we're being patient with these conversations around mental health? Because they can be big. And as Sharon G has so clearly demonstrated, we have to recognize that this one size fits all approach is just not something that we continue applying on into the future. As ever, I'm keen to hear your thoughts and questions and queries and also your guests for future episodes. So don't hesitate to get in touch with us. We're at Common Ground Co on Instagram. So until next week, it's been a pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening and see you soon.